If you have a Bible, go ahead, turn to John 13. This morning we'll be looking at John 13, verses 1 through 30. We have been studying this year John the Apostle's gospel together on Sunday mornings in order to see who Jesus Christ is, what He does, and why that matters to us today. And this morning, as we continue, we come to the famous Last Supper, Jesus' parting moments with His own disciples. So read with me John 13, follow as I read, starting in verse 1 to verse 30. John writes, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That evening, the meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around His waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, no, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. Jesus answered, no, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is already clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew, John writes, who was going to betray him. That's why I said, not every one of you is clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you, though. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens... So that when it does happen, you will believe I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. 
One of them, a disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned over to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why he said this. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought, Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. But as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. I grew up in Syracuse, New York, which if you've never been there, sits right on the shores of Onondaga Lake. Now, Onondaga Lake is not your average lake by any means. A combination of raw sewage and industrial dumping meant that for most of my life, it has been the most polluted lake in the country. As a lake, it was absolutely useless. You couldn't swim in it. You couldn't fish out of it. Lakefront property was not at all highly prized real estate. At first glance, though, it looked pretty normal. Uh, unless you were driving by it, especially on a hot summer day, and you were hit with this pungent combination of raw sewage and mercury. There are all sorts of urban legends about it. Uh, if you ate a fish out of it, you'd glow in the dark at night. Uh, initiation, freshman initiation in our high school crew team was getting thrown into the lake. And for almost a century, they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, pollutants had settled into the bottom of the lake, and so scientists were worried that any attempt to cleanse the lake would stir up this biohazardous sludge that had settled down into the bottom and only make things worse. Well, according to the Bible, the human heart is not so different. We are all born into this world with a spiritual pollutant inside of us. Sin. One that, like the lake I grew up on, leaves us just a shadow of who we were meant to be. A pollutant that has settled so deep down into the depths of who we are that any attempt on our own to cleanse ourselves of the sin that's inside us will only stir things up and make everything worse. It's this spiritual pollutant, this sin that's inside each and every one of us, that Jesus Christ in the passage we just read is showing us he's come to do something about. Here in John 13, Jesus, during his last moments with his disciples, his last moments of his life, does something unthinkable. The guest of honor takes the role of a servant. The one who's so great stoops so low and washes his disciples' feet. Yet what Jesus is doing here is explaining an even more unbridled and unnecessary and uncomfortable act of love that he was about to perform. 
The account opens by stating that Jesus knew his return to the Father was now imminent. Jesus then tells his disciples, they don't understand what he's doing right now, but very soon they will. And the whole motivation for the entire scene of this scandalous humility of Jesus was so that he could show them the fullest extent of his love. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is giving his disciples here a tactile explanation of what he's about to accomplish through his death on the cross. That in less than a day's time, the one who is so great will stoop so low as to be crucified to cleanse us from our sins. It will be a moment in history more scandalous than if the God of the universe bent down and scrubbed the dirt out underneath your toenails. One so life-changing, world-shaping that Jesus is showing here, we must center our entire lives around his cleansing cross. And in order for us to do that this morning, there's three things that we need to see in this passage. The need of the cross, the pattern of the cross, and then the plan of the cross. So first... The need for the cross. Uh, John sets the scene for us by indicating the moment and the motive behind what Jesus is about to do. He says in verse 1 that it was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus now knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father. Jesus knows at this moment that, that he is within touching distance of the reason the Father sent him, that in 15 hours' time, he will be stretched limb to limb on a Roman cross. In 24 hours' time, he will be dead and buried in a tomb. And because of this, John says in verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's this unbridled, unnecessary and for the disciples here, uncomfortable love of Jesus that causes him to do something shocking. A couple of years ago, my family and I were on a road trip to the beach, and at one point we stopped for some gas. And as I'm pumping gas, I look in the backseat of the car and realize our family dog is no longer where she was supposed to be. And so I start looking around the gas station in a panic, asking my wife, where's Biscuit? Where's Biscuit? Where's Biscuit? only to discover she was exactly where I should have expected her to be, curled up in one of our kids' plush car seats that she had commandeered as her own. Well, at the Last Supper, Jesus Christ gets up from his seat only to turn up where nobody would have expected him to be. The disciples uh, ate this meal, laying on their side in kind of this low U-shaped table. And you can almost imagine being one of the disciples down at the ends, and looking up at the head of the table where Jesus would have been and seeing him not in his seat and thinking, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Oh, wait. Is he washing Matthew's feet over there? Verse 4, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was now wrapped around him. 
Now, foot washing was something that was reserved for the lowest of servants. In fact, Jews in that day wouldn't even let their servants wash the feet of someone who wasn't a Jew. It was too low. But Jesus here reverses the expected roles. He undresses himself and puts on the clothes of a servant. He humbles himself from the place of honor at the head of the table and takes the place of dishonor at the feet of his disciples. Jesus, who's so great, stoops so low, gets a bowl of water and starts to scrub the dirt in between his disciples' toes. It was shocking, almost embarrassing for his disciples. But Jesus is dramatizing here an even more shocking act of love and service he will perform on the cross when he will stoop so low that he can't get any lower, dying to cleanse us from the spiritual filth within us. And as Jesus makes his way down to the Apostle Peter in verse 6, Jesus reveals here two reasons why we need his cleansing cross. Peter is confused in verse 6, and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You shall never, literally, not for eternity, not in a million years, wash my feet. And Jesus answered in verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now that term, have no part with me, is regularly used to talk about an inheritance. Jesus is saying here that unless when you look at the cross, you see me, as it were, at your feet, loving you, serving you, and cleansing you from your sin, then you'll never know this future inheritance God's promised to those in me. You'll never experience all the great spiritual blessings that I want to share with you. You won't belong to me. So church, if we want to belong to Jesus, then he's telling us here we first need to admit we need his cleansing cross. We need to admit that our hearts are polluted and that we can't clean ourselves up. We need to realize that there is no spiritual makeup that you can ever put over your sin before God, that, that no amount of middle-class respectability or spiritually-minded morality will ever for a moment cover the stain of sin on our hearts. No, if we want to belong to Jesus, then we first need to admit our need to be cleansed. And then you need to let him wash you. You need to let him serve you. You need to let him stoop down and restore you. You need to experience the fullest extent of his love for you by dying on the cross to cleanse you from your sins. Can you do that? So we need the cross to belong to Jesus and to be sustained by Jesus. Uh, Peter, characteristically, gets uh, a little too excited. And in verse 9, uh, after Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, then Lord, Peter replies, not just my feet, but my hands, my head, do everything. 
And Jesus replies to him, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is already clean. Jesus turns Peter's excitement around here to show a second need for his cleansing cross. That we not only need its initial cleansing to belong to Jesus, but we need its ongoing cleansing to be sustained by Jesus. Jesus says, if you've taken a bath, meaning if you've put your trust in what I will accomplish for you through the cross, then your sins are forgiven. It's a once-for-all cleansing. You are clean. But as life goes on, you will need to reaffirm your faith in my cross to reacquire the blessings of my cleansing cross. You see, a Christian is not someone who's perfect, but someone who's constantly learning that they're not perfect, uh, which in a way will only grow and increase as you grow in your Christian life. You know, a lot of us don't realize this when we become a Christian, but actually as you grow in the Christian life, there in one sense becomes more opportunity for sin, right? It's as you grow in your holiness that your capacity to become self-righteous grows. It's as you grow in your understanding of sin that your capacity to judge other people grows. It's as you grow in your knowledge of the Bible that your capacity to be right all the time grows. It's as you grow in Christian community that your capacity to cover up your own sin grows. And, and all of this is on top of the regular temptations and struggles that we faced before we became a Christian. And when we give in to any of these sins, our relationship with God becomes weaker, less trusting, our sense of His presence diminishes, and our faith wavers. And so Jesus is showing Peter here our need to be sustained by his cleansing cross. That it's not just for the first day of the Christian life, but every day of the Christian life. That each and every day, in the face of our sins, we need to confess and repent and reaffirm our faith in Christ's cleansing cross to renew our relationship with our Heavenly Father. The need for the cross Second, the pattern of the cross. In verse 12, it says, When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. So what Jesus is describing here is the inevitable pattern of the cross. See, when you become a Christian, you become a member of the community of the cleansed, the community of those who have looked at Christ on the cross and seen him, as it were, at your feet, loving you, serving you, and cleansing you from your sin. And this creates an, an almost inevitable pattern of how I then react to those around me. That Jesus' posture here of scandalous humility and service and love is now to be my posture and my relationships with the people in my life. It's an inevitable pattern and it's an undeniable pattern. 
Jesus says in verse 16, very truly then, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus ratchets up his uh, persuasiveness to the disciples a little bit here, as if to say, no servant or messenger could ever claim to be exempt from what his master has already willingly, joyfully done to them. So, disciples, you have to do this. Now, what Jesus is doing here is the opposite of the Queen Mary approach. Uh, There's this great scene in the Netflix show The Crown where Queen Elizabeth, the current queen, was much younger then, and she was talking to her grandmother, Queen Mary, uh, asking her why she should continue on. She's wrestling in this moment with the weight of being England's monarch, And, and Queen Mary tells her that monarchy... Is God's gift to humanity, that it gives people a higher ordeal for them to aim to, a higher, more dignified life for them to now try to live up to. Well, uh, thankfully, Jesus Christ does the opposite of the Queen Mary. Jesus is not standing here above the rest of humanity as some detached, distant, dignified example for us to hoist ourselves up to and strive to become. No, He's so great yet stoops so low, lower than anyone could have imagined. And it's based on this scandalous act of service in His crucifixion that He gives now this pattern of the cross for how we live amongst one another. And what Jesus is saying here is something that I actually think a lot of modern, enlightened people today respect about him. Uh, In our modern culture today, uh, we are, in a very good way, uh, aware of those in need. Uh, We see the dignity in every person, and we fight to make sure that dignity is upheld. But in in our modern culture, in our modern Western culture, here's the dilemma. We have tried to keep Jesus' command to love and serve one another while removing it from the pattern of his own love and service towards us. In other words, we want to keep Jesus' example but reject its basis. We want to keep Jesus' model of love but reject its basis on me being a sin-polluted person who's been cleansed through the radical kindness of the cross. And so here's the big question. Can we have one without the other? Can we love people like Jesus is calling his disciples to here, without it merely being the response of us being radically loved by somebody great. Well, moral philosophers, I will tell you that when you try to do this, there's two motivations that we oftentimes end up falling into. On the one hand, can lead to a self-righteous charity. Uh, We want to serve people because we want to boost up our self-worth. We want to feel good about ourselves. Uh, Maybe we want to feel superior uh, to people around us who we think are less compassionate than us. But what happens is when we do this, when we experience then uh, the real-life frustrations and disappointments and challenges of helping people, our charity can then collapse into a contempt for those that we're trying to help. But on the other hand, we can also fall into uh, this resentful charity where we serve those around us 
out of anger for their suffering. Now, it's not, not that we shouldn't be angry. We absolutely should be. When anger is the sole motivation behind our charity, it collapses then into a contempt, not for the people we're serving, but the people in power who have caused the problems in the first place. Do you see? In order to love and serve as Jesus is commanding us to here, you can't do that without a deep humility that can only be produced through experiencing someone great become so low for you. In order to love like Jesus here, we need to first be cleansed by Jesus. And if we do that, well, look at all the good that is done in our world through God's common grace and think how much more can we do through His saving grace. The need for the cross, the pattern of the cross, lastly, the plan of the cross. As the meal continues, the tension heightens. Jesus reveals uh, that one of his disciples is going to betray him. And yet Jesus is using the confusion and the anxiety that this stirs up to instill in us a confidence in his cleansing cross by showing us here that everything that's going to take place in less than a day's time has been entirely orchestrated by God. Uh, you could summarize the assurance that Jesus gives us here in two phrases. First, this isn't an accident. Jesus says in verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you, though. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture he who shared my bread has turned against me. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is about a righteous man, King David, who suffers because he's betrayed from a really close friend. Yet in the end, he's vindicated by God. And Jesus quotes this psalm here to tell his disciples that as David was betrayed but vindicated, so I will be too. But even more than a betrayed sufferer, David is also a pattern for the future Messiah, for the one who would come being sent by God to cleanse us from our sins. And so Jesus has a double meaning here. He isn't just saying, I'm fulfilling the experience of David, but I'm also fulfilling the expectation of David. That I am the Messiah, the Savior, who though betrayed will be vindicated for God for the good of the world. It's all part of the plan. He reassures us, this isn't an accident, and I'm in control. Now, Jesus' complete control over this whole situation can be seen three different ways. First, in the disciples' confusion. Jesus, after he said this in verse 21, was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one of them he could have meant. Now, did you catch what happened there? Nobody expects Judas. 
Jesus says that one of them is going to betray them, and the disciples look at each other, all anxious that it might be one of them. At no point do any one of them go, I wonder who it could be. Uh, Judas? Any thoughts? Any names come to your mind? I mean, you're here. What's your hot take on all of this right now? He says, the reality is Judas had just spent three years doing full-time ministry with them next to Jesus, healing people, prophesying, casting out demons. The disciples are completely disoriented here. And yet Jesus is assuring them, I'm in control. Through their confusion and through his confidence. In verse 23, John writes, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John himself, was reclining next to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned over to this disciple and asked him, ask him which one he means. And so leaning back against Jesus, John, now just talking one-on-one to Jesus, said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas. Now, for years, I have read this passage and wondered why St. John at this moment didn't just jump up, look at Judas, and say, it's him! Jesus just told him! Well, it wasn't until I was studying this last week that I came across in in D.A. Carson's commentary on this that he says it's probably because John was absolutely stunned by Jesus' confidence here. It was like the first time I told Becca I loved her. I said it with such calm clear confidence that she was speechless. That's not true. I said, uh, I said, Becca, I think I love you. And she said, what do you mean you think? But Jesus is assuring them here, I'm in control through your confusion, through my confidence, and through Satan's conspiring. Verse 27 As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. Meaning, whatever your plan is to betray me, speed it up. I'm ready to die. Jesus is saying, Satan may think, that he is being cunning and smart, but he's not dictating things here. I am. That as he's already said in chapter 10, no one will take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and will pick it up again. And it's in Jesus' words to his disciples that this isn't an accident and I'm in control that we can be assured of God's plan of the cross, that Jesus Christ was not the victim of Judas' treason or Satan's scheming, but was fulfilling the great unfolding plan of God from the beginning. When God promised to Eve the moment humanity first became stained with sin in Genesis 3.15, that one from you will come who will crush the head of the serpent, and it's happening now in Jesus And so if this was God's plan all along, then we can have complete assurance that it works. That when you come to Jesus' cross in faith, 
to cleanse you from your sins. Your stubborn ones, your persistent ones, your shameful ones, your unforgettable ones. You can be sure that he has. So as we come to a close, uh, here's St. John's urgent appeal for us in this passage this morning. Center your entire life around the cleansing cross of Jesus. Center everything on it. Look at Jesus here in chapter 13, washing his disciples' feet, where the great and revered teacher assumed the role of despised and humiliated servant for the good of his disciples, and by faith, see on the cross, the great and revered God of the universe, assuming the role of a despised and humiliated sinner for the good of you. Look at Christ crucified and see him, as it were, at your feet, washing your sins, not with water, but with his own precious blood. Look at the full extent of the love of the one who in Revelation 4 is called holy, 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 as he dies to make you clean and center everything in your life around it. Everything in your life around the place where he who is so high yet stooped so low for you. Thanks be to Christ. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are great. Greater than we'll ever fully know in this life. And yet on the cross, you stooped low, lower than we'll ever understand in this life. Holy Spirit, we need you to take the message of John 13 and convict us, cleanse us, and assure us of the efficacy and power of Christ's cleansing cross so that we would center every bit of our lives around it. Amen.